This is Alexandra Segade. Welcome back to the fourth episode of Visual Aid's inaugural podcast series. Visual Aids uses art to fight AIDS by provoking dialogue, supporting HIV-positive artists, and preserving a legacy, because AIDS is not over. Over the course of the season, we've been covering Strip Aids 2020, a series of four newly commissioned comics that we've launched online at visualaids.org slash comics. Comics are a visual and accessible medium that have long been used as educational tools in the fight against HIV and AIDS, providing life-saving information about safer sex practices and representing communities and perspectives often erased from public health narratives. Today, we are celebrating Strutting to Stop Stigma, a comic by Mel Rachu about her work with Catwalk for Power. Catwalk for Power is a group of women living with HIV who work to empower each other by organizing workshops and fashion shows. They describe their events as, quote, creating a space where women with HIV can embody and physically manifest how to be in the world without stigma. Joining Mel is the award-winning diva living with AIDS, Ray Lewis Thornton, who appeared on the cover of Essence magazine in 1994 in a story that helped shift broader understanding of AIDS away from being just a gay, white, male issue. Okay, good morning. Uh, No, hi, Mel. Hi, Mel, how are you? I'm fine, thanks, Ray. I'm just so glad um, that we could talk today. Um, I'm Ray Lewis Thornton, and I have been living with HIV for 37 years. Uh, I transitioned to AIDS about 27 years ago. And so I'm one of those people who lived, um, have lived the span of the AIDS pandemic. Uh, um, I donated blood and what I thought was a thank you letter was a letter telling me something was wrong with the blood I donated. And I went to the Red Cross and they told me that I was HIV infected. And it was very early in the epidemic. There was no treatment. There was no care. And they really didn't know if everybody with HIV would eventually transition to AIDS. Of course, as the, the years went on, we, we did understand that you know, everybody with HIV would eventually develop AIDS. And, you know, I kind of went through what I call a quasi-denial and secret. Excuse me, like I knew I was infected, but I kept it a secret. I went to the doctor once every six months. I didn't tell, you know, maybe my first three years, I told five people. No, my first five to seven years, I told about five people. Like the first day I told three people and then I didn't tell anybody else for another three years and I didn't tell anybody else for another five years. And, um, and it was my hope that, and my prayer that I would never transition to AIDS. And when I transitioned to AIDS, you know, back then, 91, um, 92 AIDS was a death sentence you know the life expectancy was about three years and so you know I thought I was dying and so I told my friends that I was infected that I was dying um and I only disclosed uh so that I could prepare people for my death which is just like the craziest thing and a year later 
um, as I was sinking just into severe depression, um, someone called me and asked me what I speak. They knew that I was a political activist. That was the work that I had done prior. I was an organizer. And, uh, you know, I wasn't a speaker and I didn't want to talk about my journey. And, you know, this guy convinced me to call the teacher and the con teacher convinced me to come to the school. And we talked. Um, I had grown up in a very difficult childhood. And I always believed that God had a purpose for my life. And I thought that it was the work that I had been doing in social justice. Um, but, you know, it happened to be um, speaking. And um, four weeks later, something like that, I quit my well-paying job in politics <clears throat> and um, launched out on a speaking. Um, and my goal was to speak to as many uh, people as I could before I died. And then a year later, um, Susan Taylor, the editor-in-chief of Essence magazine, heard me speak for like three minutes and asked me would I be on the cover of her magazine. And of course, we changed the face of AIDS for Black women in America. And um, I'm in it until the very end because women continue to be disproportionately impacted by this disease. We continue to have less of a voice. Um, and that's why I love your comic script so much because, you know, it shares your journey. Um, so why don't you talk about, um, our journeys are so different in that, you know, I never had that group kind of support, which I encourage other women to do. You know, one day I was this private person with HIV and the next, you know, I was this person on the cover of magazines and on news shows and, you know, talking about my journey. Um, so talk about a little bit about you and your journey and um, this comic strip for me. So it, it's interesting that you say that we've had very different journeys, but there, there are some connections there. So in the last year and in this comic, in the story, yes, I did have an amazing group of women that supported me and taught me a lot. And I learned a lot about myself, but I was diagnosed back in 2001. And again, also, you know, kept it very, very secret. Um, so I was diagnosed when I was pregnant. Again, it's so similar to you. It came as a shock. It wasn't what I was expecting. And um, I was advised not to tell anyone. Um, I was advised to have an abortion. There was, there was a, you know, even in 2001, it, there was, there was a lot of, you know, that I shouldn't have been told that, but you know, a lot of sometimes, uh, depending where you are and, and, and the doctors and midwives that understand, you know, you get different information. So I'm a, I had my baby um, and I had two other children. So I, just didn't tell my family. So I didn't have any support for many, many years. Um, and also similar to you, one of the, the first steps for me was talking in a school. So going to talk about sexual health in a school, that was one of the first times when I was actually felt that I could talk about it and be empowered and, you know, share this story of, you know, it can happen to anyone. It's not, it's not just gay guys. It's not, and, and also that you can live well with it. So, you know, 
when I was diagnosed, I also thought, you know, the doctors told me I had a limited life expectancy. Um, and my understanding was that you would die from it. I mean, I was a teenager in the 80s when it came here in the UK. Um, and so that was the association. So I also lived in Kenya for three years. So my understanding then was people who people people just died of pneumonia. We we knew that it was HIV, but you know, people died. And so that was my association when I was told I thought I was gonna die. Um, but I didn't. And um fortunately I'm also uh I could say a natural suppressor. So um I also meant that I my biology controlled the virus without the need for medication for a long time so that's I was very grateful for that as well so I have been living a healthy productive life um but I was still very much secret about it and you know it's interesting like you're saying you were there on the front cover of the magazine and I'm going to be there on the cover of my comic you know it's quite an interesting development for me that I'm putting myself out there in this way uh, I have blogged I blog for a girl like me and um, but it's been under a pseudonym and I also uh, started a community company called Positively Mindful where I promoted uh, peer support and well-being for people living with HIV but it it's really catwalk for power where I've been able to stand up and say, you know, this is me, Mel Ratchu, living with HIV. Here I am. No shame, no secrecy. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Such a powerful story. But to think two decades later that you still, you know, lived in the level of isolation that I lived with. Um, and, and I, su I suspect that there are many other women that live in, you know, this isolation because, you know, there's an expectation that women, you know, you know, our vaginas are so regulated by society, you know, when we have sex, who we have sex with, you know, why do we have sex? And, and none of these are for men. And so... And I, I found something something else interesting in your story, um, that in 2001, you had doctors still telling women that, um, you know, they shouldn't give birth to children. When we, without any medication, there's only a 30% chance that you will infect your child. And by 2001, we did know that, you know, there were regimens that worked uh, for perinatal transmission. So um, I just find that that just really incredible that here we are, you know, almost 40 years into the pandemic and um, we are still, women are living in isolation. But what I find is I think it's great when women can find spaces to help nurture you know, to help nurture us. And uh, our nurturing is so different from male. So talk a little bit about your comic strip. I just want to say this. When I first uh, saw your comic strip, before I read through it, the thing that really just struck me the most was um, 
how beautiful uh, the coloring was, how uh, bright and um, it gave it so much energy, you know, as opposed to, you know, it being something very dark. Um, so tell me about the coloring first. That's what I want to talk about most. I, you know, we can, we'll talk about the story, but tell me about the colors. Um, so th the comic was a real process and it was uh, started as a black and white um, drawing and I didn't actually really put that much thought into the colors. It was all about trying to fit it, trying to fit the text, trying to get the transcript right. But then when I got these sheets back, which were all printed all together, it was like, great, now, now the fun begins. And that's when I got my watercolors out and just started having fun. So that was, you know, and it was, that was it. I just did it. <laughs> Didn't really think about it, just did it. And I think a lot of it is that I really did want that brightness that you know, I didn't want to create anything depressing. I wanted to share what actually the catwalk is, which is a very bright, uplifting, colorful experience. So I wanted to replicate that in that way. So, yeah. And just to, to, to bring you back to the, the comment about isolation, because that really is what Catwalk for Power is. It's about meeting women, even, you know, in, 2000, in, the, in 2019, who are living in isolation, who are living in fear of the stigma, and, and finding them and allowing them to connect with other women, as you say, share our stories, interact. And then the actual experience of the Catwalk is experiencing this stigma-free space, this space where you can actually declare who you are and, and, and lose that shame, lose that secrecy. And once a woman has stepped and experienced that, then you can see the transformation because then there's a shift in the internalized stigma. There's a shift in awareness. And they've, you know, so I've, I've met women who've lived in the shadows for 30 years, Ray. Yeah, it, it, because, you know, I live just outside of London, but when we went up to Manchester, you've got people in rural, really rural communities who don't have that connection, who haven't been able to experience that. And it's still very, very much fearful. You know, even though we have You Equals You, we have a lot of these amazing campaigns. I think when for me, especially when you're coming from a place of unworthiness or coming from a place of fear, and then you get this on top of it, it just increases, increases, and you, you just bring go into yourself. Yeah, exactly. I, um, I understand that in the, in the U S in a lot of, um, in the early days in the spaces that, um, that I personally were in, we didn't have a, a lot for women here because, you know, men still was the number one, um, of men were still the largest group of, of people who were infected with HIV here in the US, even as we began to see um, uh, an increase in women with HIV. And so um, the studies and the groups and all of that was either um, men who had sex, had sex with men or um, IV drug users, and you had this portion of women who, you know, contracted HIV uh, through heterosexual contact, and that was their story, and they they really had no place um, to to relate, and so we had 
groups that started popping up. I know my doctor, um, March Coyne, who was my doctor for like 15 years, was the founder of the Women and Children HIV Clinic in Chicago. And it was attached to Cook County Hospital. It was called the Core Center now. But she, she founded this clinic because, you know, in treating women and treating children, she found that mothers would bring their children to be treated, but they wouldn't come back for themselves. Um, and so, you know, organizing something like the Women and Children HIV Clinic, you know, created a space where women could come with their children that was nurturing. And it became our place, it became our safe place. Sometimes it was the only, you know, space that we were able, that we had to talk about HIV or to get a hug or, you know, have some encouragement or share stories on side effects of medications. And so um, it, it's an empowering space for women to be able to, um, you know, to share our stories and be in this space where we can. And I would say that some of these groups just saved our lives. You know, what would you say? I would say exactly the same thing. <laughs> and that's interesting, isn't it? You know, and, and, I've, and this is what I've learned working with a, women living with HIV internationally. Having that opportunity to meet with your peers, to meet with other women and share your stories is so healing. That's what we need. And really, that's what um, Catwalk for Power started off um, because it's a grassroots movement. It began because there wasn't the, vis the visibility, because there wasn't the research, because there, as, as you've said in America, and it's, and you know, this was just four years ago, there was research that was saying, you know, women globally now we're 57% of the people living with HIV and here in the UK we're a third I don't know what the statistic is in, the, in in America but you know we are there's a lot of us and to just keep seeing white gay men is like no this is doesn't represent us and and the services don't offer what we need so it was to make ourselves more visible so a group of women came together and said how can we make ourselves more visible and they developed this, this idea of a fashion show where we could just be in a safe space, feel wonderful, but also be able to share this call for action, this call for researchers, this call for politicians, this call for healthcare providers to actually talk to us, listen to us and provide for us. It's interesting because when I was first diagnosed, I was in a study at the National Institute of Health, but they never asked me questions about being a woman. Um, it was always questions about, you know, specifically about my sex life uh, and my lifestyle, but nothing. Um, and for 15 years, they drew blood and never did a pap smear, you know, and that, you know, it really, spoke to how unimportant women were in the context of HIV and developing drugs for, you know, women with HIV, um, and to just even see how HIV um, differs in our body from, from men. You know, I kept getting yeast infections, even from the period where I wasn't 
being treated for HIV and I hadn't disclosed, you know, I was, you know, getting repeated yeast infections as an example. And it, it wasn't until I went to a doctor who actually was looking at um, cases and cases and cases and similarities of women with HIV that they began to say, this is how this disease manifests in women. And, you know, we have, you know, we're more at risk for, um, for, you know, cancer or irregular pap smears or, you know, irregular menstrual cycles. And so I think that, um, it's just really, really important, um, that women are a part of um, the solution for AIDS because we can't, you know, I mean, this society moves and grooves on women uh, and to think that we've just been kind of like left out. I, I, don't, I don't know how else to put it. And I still feel that sense. I still feel that um, women who, and I still go to the free clinic here. I go to the AIDS clinic here in Chicago, where, where I live. And so, you know, most of the women that come to the clinic are working class women, um, you know, women with children. Um, and I even have I've thought about now in isolation, you know, what do, you know, where do women go now, you know, that I go to the clinic with? Where do they go to you know, get a hug and to, um, you know, process, you know, living with HIV, living in isolation, um, when we can't even meet in the space, you know, like there's no meeting space, no place where we can go. So like there are uh, HIV programs in some of the areas in the U.S., like I know in the South, uh, there's some really good ones for women but up north, a lot of our groups are attached to a clinic. And so, you know, there's no, and clinics aren't even letting you in right now. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's a difficult time for women with HIV. Okay, let's get back to this comic. Let's get back to... It's important to, to think about that, Ray. It's like, you know, when we are isolated and when we don't have the, the, the groups, because, I mean, HIV services have been really cut in the UK, so a lot of our groups are, are, are not existent. And that's where, you know, having the visibility, having things like comics, having people on the cover of magazines, having stories can be really, really impactful. I mean, I remember when when I was living in the shadows, as I call it, and I used to go to my clinic every six months for my bloods, and I used to have to go to London because I didn't want to go to my local clinic because it was, it was right next to my school. I didn't want anyone to see me going into the sexual health center. So I went into London, and they had a magazine called Positive Nation there, and there was a woman, Susan, who used to write a little article on the back but I used to live for that because that was my connection that and I can imagine like you were talking about you on the cover of a magazine how empowering that is just to see that picture of someone that that woman looks like me it, it, immediately you're not so isolated you're not so isolated you have that connection the other let me say the other thing I found really striking about the the artwork on the comic was that 
you lifted up every woman's identity. And, and I just loved that piece. And, and when I, their own individuality, you know, so that it just wasn't a comic and everyone looked the same or their features were the same, but you gave power to their individuality. And I think that that's really important because when we talk about women in HIV, although we are connected, you know, you know, in some way for being a woman, we all are individuals. And I, I just found that very uplifting that you didn't try to, you know, hide the identities, the, the race, the ethnicity of, of many of the, of the women in the comic. That was very, very powerful because you, you know, you gave them power by identifying who they were in just the details of how you, uh, you drew them. I just thought that was powerful. Thank you. I mean, and, I mean, that's the thing is, these are real women. This is not, you know, fantasy. And I think that's the thing that um, why we also did the kind of bios at the back as well, just to explain that this isn't a fantasy. This is this this really happened. There was women of all races, all, you know, all all walks of life you know we had we had professionals we had asylum seekers we had mothers we had uh, women living in retirement homes you know we had everyone from everywhere who wanted to who who were who you know we supported them to join so the comic is really a reflection of how diverse catwalk for power was that is really really um that's really great. The other thing I noticed as I as I read through your story, uh, read through the story, um, it was interesting to see how one thing led to another thing, to another good thing, to another good thing. And, you know, it's about getting started somewhere where no matter how small or, you know, you may think your beginning is, it you know, if you keep working, it will open up a door because you never know um, what doors are waiting for you until you walk through them. You know, you don't know what the next door is going to be until you walk through the first door. And uh, having the power and the strength to walk through the first door opens up other doors. Yeah, I, I'm really pleased that you got that from it because that that really is, although I said, you know, I, I, I was an activist before I got involved, it really was that, you know, the just a very simple invitation. Hey, Mal, come along to this, you know, this show and then seeing the women. And then, as you say, more doors opened and opened from that. But that's why I wanted to end on actually meeting a woman after the Manchester catwalk and them saying, I want to get involved and, and knowing that actually here we are in a full circle of this woman now is the same as I was two years ago, seeing a catwalk for power for the first time, but now she has all these resources. And so what doors are gonna open for her and knowing that that's the start of her journey of empowerment. And you know, once you're empowered, um, it saves your life. <laughs> yeah. You know, because um, it just saves your freaking life. I don't even know how, 
to explain it. It gives you something to, to live for. You know, you continue to take, you know, your medicines, you can tend to, you know, you just want, you want to keep living for the next thing, you know, and that's why uh, groups like Cat Power are so, um, so important. Hey, do you know how the name came about, Cat, Cat Walk Power? It started as, um, the very first one was called uh, Positive Women's Fashion Show. And that was like, we can't call it that. We've got to call it something else. Um, and then it became, because a catwalk uh, in, in one of the poems as well, because it's there, there's a poem that says it's not a pussy parade. It's, 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 it's not this, you know, sometimes with the catwalk, you think that it's not very empowering for a woman just to be, you know, I know you're a, you're a diva and you love all your fashion, but uh, there is some resistance to that idea. But catwalk for power took the idea that a catwalk is this, um, not only a runway, but also this, this precarious ledge. That's what a catwalk is. It's this bridge that a cat can walk across and but it was making this bridge that we can walk across but making it powerful wow that is that's great but also these women are divas and so oh yeah i i am a, i am a diva now but that's the, the the really interesting thing about it you know i claim i have learned to be a diva and and i i struck with pride but it wasn't something that I actually had a kind of interest in or was was my um, persona before Catwalk for Power. So it really was a huge development for me. Whereas let's say take Nao, my fellow coordinator on this. When she was a little girl, she would tell me she used to strut in her stilettos and, you know, that's, you know, what she used to dream of being on the runway. So it's, it's interesting how for her, yes, she, she loved it. She was kind of a natural diva strutting her stuff. But for me, I really had to learn to stand tall, stand proud and to own my space and to walk out. You know, I'm, I, I had other, you know, I'm educated and I was an activist, but I didn't have this ability to actually own my space, own my body, really value myself, really, you know, and, and dress up and wear the fake nails, wear stilettos. I'm a tall girl. I didn't wear heels when I was, when I was younger, when I was a teenager, because I was tall. I, I, you know, I, I didn't want to be taller than, than my potential partner. So I always wore flats. So this idea of taking on six inch stilettos, but you know, I embraced it and I loved every minute of it. And that was really due to another great ally of ours. I have to mention Madam Storm. She's brilliant. Yeah. Really brilliant. Well, I was born a diva and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I even have diva rules, you know, um, red lipstick is my signature. You know, I never leave home without earrings on, uh, the shoes I start with are the shoes I end with unless I change my outfit. And so, um, the contrast for me was that HIV had such a dirty connotation and it made you feel dirty and people made you feel dirty, especially women, because you had to be a whore, you know, quote unquote, if you, um, if you were a woman with HIV, you know, how many sexual partners you had, all of these things were questioned for women that were never questioned 
for men. And, you know, part of what I wanted to do in my life is show women with HIV that they can hold their heads up. You know, that you can still dress nice with HIV. You can comb your hair, put on lipstick. You can be you. Um, and you don't ever have to put your head down. And so, you know, part of, of my brand has been, quote unquote, diva living with AIDS. And what I did was I just extended what I had already been. Um, I continued it as I was a public person with with HIV. And, um, you know, and then I, you know, people say, oh, she's so for black women, uh, especially African-American women, you know, I'm this well-dressed, well-put-together, educated black woman with AIDS. And they have a sense of pride in me and my story because the stories that they've heard about women um, don't lift them up, don't validate them. But for me, I wanted to give other women with HIV the power to to uh, to stand strong with this disease and and not shrink in the ugliness of what people say you are because you have HIV because you live with this disease and so you know that's been a, a big part uh, of my message. I was one of those people who started medication very early. I started AZT. Um, the year that AZT came out and I suffered through the generation of, I'm going to connect the dot in a minute. I suffered through the generation of the first class of HIV medications that made you very, very ill, um, extreme diarrhea, extreme nausea. And, you know, one of the things that you know, I did in terms of my image was, you know, I would stand in front of an audience dressed to the nines and sick as a dog. Um, and because they couldn't see my sickness, I described my sickness for them, you know, and for a lot of people, it, for a lot of women, it said, wow, you know, I can, I can, stick this medicine out and, and keep going. And the days that, you know, you know, I can get up and put my lipstick on and I can keep going and it, and it's okay. And, you know, one time even I, I had diarrhea so bad one time, uh, while I was speaking, I actually stopped and went to the bathroom, used the bathroom and came back, you know, and with fresh lipstick on. And so it was like, okay, HIV can't take all of me. It can't take the best of me. And I think that's what we have to continue to instill in women, that you may have HIV, but you can't let HIV have all of you. You know, it, should, it doesn't have to define who you are and how you live your life, you know. And that's what I think it's so great about uh, the catwalk and the comics because it's like yeah. and and the and the catwalk is part of the, just you saying that put your putting your lipstick on the catwalk isn't just that walk it is a whole series of workshops and it is all the development just before and the rehearsals and also even having your makeup done there's been some really beautiful you know we, 
when we do it, we look fantastic. We've had Mac makeup support us. But even before in some of the rehearsals, I remember in Brighton, um, we did a whole day with makeup sessions. And as you're saying, it just it gives the women back their beauty, their empowerment, their sexuality. It, it means that they are... It, they they are given that opportunity to recognize hey actually yes i am this beautiful woman hiv doesn't define me as you just say i am more than that but without that kind of intervention there wasn't the motivation to do that so we gave them that and, and allowed them to see themselves for the beautiful women they are yeah. and i bet um that it stays with them for you know, weeks and months, you know. And years, yes. <laughs> yep. And once you once you've started, you can't stop either. We we had one uh woman who wasn't part of the initial team but then joined us for the uh catwalk that we did at um AIDS Impact Conference and then she was like, Yeah, I'm with you and she came to Brighton with us, she came to Manchester with us, she did fast track cities with us. She you know, she was just like, I want more and more and more of this. It's just such a great feeling, yeah. So what's great. Yeah. You know, it's just really great that women, um, that we have these spaces where women can, can heal emotionally, you know, and that, that's a good thing with, with HIV. What do we say other than, yeah, you know, that's, that's right. And, and thank God for the women who, um, dare to organize these groups, these talks who, you know, and, um, and created a space for us so that we could live healthy and whole with this disease. Yeah. And, and let's hope that it just, yeah, it, it expands and continues and yeah. We, we yeah attitudes change and more and more women get empowered because if as a woman you lift another woman then you know you're, we're gonna we're gonna make it in the end <laughs> thanks mel and ray for that wonderful conversation and all the wonderful work you do i can't think of a better way to end the series before i sign off i'd like to take a moment and share a little about my work around comics and why I'm here talking to you about comics and HIV. I'm an artist and writer based in New York. My new graphic novel, a queer superhero adventure titled The Context, just came out on Primary Information and is available at primaryinformation.org. That's The Context, available at primaryinformation.org. I also have written about queer themes in superhero comics, and my podcast, Super Gay, explores the ways that mainstream comics have always been queer. For the upcoming Visual AIDS exhibition about comics and HIV, I contributed a catalog essay discussing how superhero comics from the late 1980s to the current moment have grappled with representations of HIV AIDS. Superheroes are hard, impenetrable, offering the fantasy of immunity to illness and harm. HIV AIDS which disproportionately affected minority communities, challenged that man-of-steel ideal. But that doesn't mean Marvel and DC Comics didn't, at least a few times, attempt to use their platform to educate their readers about HIV and tackle stigma with uneven, if interesting, results. In the late 1980s, 
DC Comics series New Guardians introduced the first HIV-positive superheroes, including a queer-coded Peruvian wizard called Extraño and green, flame-haired Jamaican heroine named Jet. These heroes struggled with their status, living and dying heroically with HIV. Unfortunately, this series also featured the villain Hemogoblin, whose power, it seemed, was to spread AIDS. In the early 1990s, Marvel Comics made history when North Star, a Quebecois mutant and my favorite superhero, announced, I am gay. He was responding to the AIDS crisis and a political context which increasingly demanded gay representation in the mainstream, cracking open that closet door. Visibility was also a central concern for the HIV-positive sidekicks of both The Incredible Hulk and Green Arrow. Throughout the 1990s, in the extremely popular X-Men series, the legacy virus was an HIV allegory that these super-powered mutants, and metaphors for difference, battled for over 10 years of publication. All this, and more, is covered in the essay. I want to personally thank Visual Aids for inviting me to participate in this amazing project and congratulate all the artists and activists involved and thank them for their work. Strip AIDS 2020, curated by Paul Samet, is part of a larger exhibition looking at comics and HIV that would have taken place this past summer in NYC. The show is being rescheduled and a new date will be announced in 2021. Don't forget to check out the rest of the project at visualaids.org comics, where you can also see links to other works by the artists involved. Finally, I want to give a big thank you on behalf of Visual Aids to Mel Rachu and Ray Lewis Thornton, and also to Fletcher Alexson, who recorded and edited this episode, and Paul Samet for curating the project. You can find out more about Visual Aids' work at their website, visualaids.org, on Facebook at Facebook slash Visual Aids, and on Twitter and Instagram at visual underscore aids. Strip AIDS 2020 was funded in part by the New York Community Trust DIFA Fund. The Strip AIDS 2020 website and this podcast is funded in part by Humanities New York with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thanks for listening.